0: I appreciate Gordon reading that long passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 11 through 21. You notice that I titled this message, and you have the outline in your bulletin. I titled it, A Christian Worldview. You know, sometimes we use an expression like our lifetime. Uh, when we say our lifetime, we don't always just mean, oh, the 70 years, the 80, the 90 years that I lived. But we mean the setting of this life, Uh, the lifetime that I lived in. That's what the world was like. Generally, we call that our culture. You know, this is the culture in which we live. The Bible calls it the world uh, that the culture creates. This is the world in which we live. Uh, We love the people of the world. We're not to love the things that the lost nature creates in this world. But as Christians we kind of have to evaluate our place in the culture constantly. And in every, every generation, every uh, uh, group of Christians that come along, we have to know how to live. Uh, in any age, in any location, where Christians are in the world, in any of their surroundings, Christians have to say, how do I live here? How do I do what I'm supposed to do here? And so we call that a worldview. Uh, there's a Christian worldview. And we have to look at our situation and say, how do I live in America? How do I live uh, in this culture? How do I live in this political situation? How do I live in the educational system or whatever it is? Now, on the one hand, we have to adapt. And on the other hand, we should not adapt. And that, of course, becomes a tension in every generation. Um, we, we adapt, and Christians always have, when you think about it, uh, There have been Christians in every continent of the world and in every country that there's ever been, I suppose, for the last 2,000 years, or almost anyway. And so a Christian that lives there has to learn how to live there. Uh, They'll speak a different language than we speak. They have to learn that. They'll have a different uh, educational system. They probably dress differently. They eat differently. Uh, There's just things that the Christians have to adapt to, and they do it. And we always have been able to do it. That's why we have Christians in every place of the world. And yet, on the other hand, we are never to adapt to the world. (laughs) That is, we're not to love the world. And wherever we happen to be, at whatever time we live, we also have to say, but this I cannot do. And this I will not believe. And so forth. And so there is that tension back and forth. And how we balance those two is always a controversy, and there always will be, and that's okay. Uh, you have to know what you believe, and you have to stand where you should stand. I've, I'm not sure that uh, we have found a good balance in our generation, generally speaking, uh, even in this, in this country. Uh, there's just a lot of people, it seems like, that love the world and still claim the name of Christ. As we say, we have to be in the world and not of the world, right? We have to be in the world, that is like a ship is in the sea, but we can't be of the world, we can't let the sea be in the ship, because when that happens, uh, then we certainly have things backwards. And so even in this passage that we're looking at, it's interesting that down in verse 20 we're going to find the word ambassador, and that's a good description of uh, the Christian worldview we're ambassadors. We're we're from outside somewhere. We've been sent here by another country. We've been sent here by our king. And so uh, we're not native to this earth. We're not native to this culture. Uh, When we were born again, our loyalties changed, our homeland changed, our Lord changed. And so we're representatives here, and we have to adapt to do the best we can I mean, we're, we're an ambassador uh, in the United States of America, so to speak, you and I as Christians, from heaven to the United States of America, more specifically to Missouri <laughs> and maybe Smithville or Kansas City or wherever you happen to live. And yet, we, we should never lose sight of why we're here and what we're supposed to be doing here uh, as ambassadors. I thought it was interesting. I Googled a little bit uh, this week thinking about this, uh, about ambassadors all over the world. you know that America has ambassadors in 188 different countries? I, I suppose almost every country of the world. And so, uh, you know, if a country feels like it's important to have a representative in every place, shouldn't the Lord have representatives in every place too? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? Uh, But I noticed that even right now, America, out of 188 uh, places that we should have an ambassador, we have 41 vacancies. We have 41 that haven't been approved yet. And I thought to myself, you know, that's kind of like missions, too. Uh, You know, sadly, uh, in in the missionary world of the Christian world, we are losing more than we're gaining right now. And it's the first time in a long time that we've seen that happen. We have far more missionaries retiring or coming home uh, or not on the field any longer, far more than we have uh, going to the field. So we have a lot of vacancies, too, uh, in ambassadorships, and we need them. But we need them everywhere. And and then uh, a disturbing fact, at least that I thought it was a disturbing fact, is that of all of the the ambassadors we have, we have 12 different ambassadors in foreign countries that identify themselves as LGB or T. And that's something from our country. Uh, there they are representing us and that's their sexual orientation, so to speak. Well, the fact is we have a, we have a lot of poor Christian representatives on this earth too, don't we? We have a lot of uh, ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ that aren't living as they should live and representing the Lord uh, the way they should. Well our text here though we're, we're taking it as a whole and so we're going to go through it fairly quickly but it really takes us to our main business. I mean it it gets us to the point and that's why I thought it would be a good message to add to our series of messages here so that we see what our worldview is and what we should be doing in the time and place in which we live so you have an outline actually a little more detailed outline in your bulletin and and we have three thoughts what is it that we do and then why is it we do that and then how do we do it and that's what we're looking at in these three things so In verse 11, where we began reading, and I appreciate Gordon linking this to our understanding of the Bema Seat of Christ, right? And so there are many things. Let let me say, by the way, when we say, what do we do? There are many things you do. I'm assuming you as a Christian understand that you're an ambassador for for Christ. Well, there's a lot of things you have to do. You have to work a job. Uh, you have to raise your kids, you, you have to make a living, you, you have to build a house or live in a house, and you have to do all of those kinds of things, a lot of things. But what is it we do primarily? Why, why are we here? Paul mentions these core things. I mean, after all, Paul was a tent maker, right? Paul uh, knew how to stitch leather together and make a tent, and he did it so he could make a living and have food to eat. All right, we all have to do those kinds of things. But that, of course, isn't what he's talking about here. He's talking about something different. So in verse 11, I just want to remind you of a couple things. And I think what they say is this, and you notice in my outline, there are two things that we do in an overall way of looking at it. One is we walk in God's sight. You can't get away from that. And then the negative, we don't walk in men's sight. I mean, we don't seek their approval. But notice verse 11, in the light of the Bema Seat, in the light of one day seeing Christ face to face, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, I would say under we walk with God in God's sight, first of all, we fear Him. We fear the Lord. And by the way, the word terror is the normal word for fear, uh, phobos, phobia, is the word for fear. And, and yet our translators use the word terror here, maybe in the sense that, uh, hey, one day you will see him face to face. Wake up a little bit. The Bible talks about that we should walk in the fear of the Lord. Do you realize you'll see him and answer for what you've done in your life? And in that sense, maybe terror is a good word. I think that uh, you remember that um, John all, often in his epistles talks about walking in truth. When we walk in truth. Well, to one thing to walk in the fear of the Lord is to understand God's truth. God has said certain things. If you're an ambassador and you're in a foreign country, you better say what your king wants you to say. And we have the truth of God. We need to walk in that truth. But let me say also, walking in the fear of the Lord means walking with God always in our thoughts or our consciences. You can't live your life as a Christian in this world without thinking about God and the decisions you make and the language you use and the places you go and everything that you do. What does God think about this? I'm doing this in the the light of God. In other words, I know God sees. I know God knows my thoughts. I'm never out of his sight. What does he think about this? That's walking in the fear of the Lord. So notice that the second thought in our verse is, he says, uh, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. In other words, We should have a clear conscience before God so that when you do these things, you don't have to say, well, God didn't like that, or I'm going to have to go confess that wrong before God. You walk in a clear conscience. Let me remind you of two things he said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 5. Now the end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart and a good conscience and an unhypocritical faith. I mean, that is the end of the commandment. What what does our king want us to do in this foreign land? He wants us to, to do things out of a pure heart with a good conscience and be unhypocritical about it. That's having a good conscience. And in verse 19 he says, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning the faith, have made themselves shipwrecked, Like I said, there are some ambassadors who don't represent the homeland well, and we don't want to be shipwrecked in that sense. And so the first thing we do, Paul is saying here as he starts into this passage is, we walk in God's sight with a good conscience. Secondly, and he has to put this in there because no doubt there was this problem in Corinth and there's always been this problem in churches, and that is seeking man's approval. Can you imagine our ambassadors from America going to a a foreign country, and rather than representing America and and, and giving America's point of view, they give their own point of view. Or they find out what local people want them to say, and they change the message, and they say what the locals want them to say, instead of what our country wants them to say. That would be the same problem if we seek man's approval in this world rather than God. So we commend not ourselves again to you. <laughs> Let me say, you know, we always commend ourselves, don't we? <laughs> you know, we, we, uh, Paul says we don't commend ourselves, but the fact is we always commend ourselves. We're always uh, wanting a pat on the back. We're always doing what we do uh, kind of uh, having or asking people to look at me. This, this is really a look at me generation, folks. Uh, that's the, the young people coming up. I fear for that. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to film it and put it online and see how many people see it. Look at me. That, that is basically what we do. Paul says, I don't commend. We don't commend ourselves, again, for you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf that you may have somewhat to answer. I mean, in other words, do what is right so that you can answer those, notice, which glory in appearance and not in heart. They glory in their appearance and not in heart. Look, uh, if you will, at uh, at chapter 10 and verse 12 of this same book. Chapter 10 and verse 12. We dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves, comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Is that not our world? Is that not what we do constantly We commend ourselves and we compare ourselves among one another to see who's better, who's smarter, who's better looking, who has better clothes, who drives a better car, whatever. What we do constantly. As a matter of fact, we could uh, look a little farther to chapter 11, verse 12, where Paul says to this church, what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion. In other words... I think he was kind of saying, I'm going to protect the pulpit here. I'm not going to let people come into you, to the church, just to glory in themselves, just because they want a place to spout what they want to spout. I'm not going to give them that occasion to do that. That's what he's saying. And he says down in verse 19 of chapter 11 also, you suffer fools gladly. I mean, that that's a... a, a, a a lousy uh, testimony from a church suffering those fools to come in among you. So we don't seek man's approval. You know that the Bible teaches that even these two books uh, are full of this kinds of thing. The bottom line, live for God. You know, I, uh, we, we get up in the morning and, and watch a little bit of, of news before we start doing other things in the day. And uh, Thursday was Valentine's Day and uh, Thursday morning on Fox News, just before the commercial time, a couple got married on the TV program between this commercial and that commercial. Now, you know, in in any program you watch these days, there's about, out of an hour, I think there must be 45 minutes of commercials and about 15 minutes of programming. But can you imagine, just so that your wedding can be seen on TV, I mean, it was the most rushed thing you ever saw this, this Poor girl and guy come in. the 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 preacher comes in and he's reading real fast because of course the clock is ticking. They got to get to a commercial. It doesn't matter if the president himself is there. They're going to cut to a commercial because that's more important. So here you are in the most important married moment of your life, and they're rush. He's reading through it as fast as he can. Do you take her? Yeah, I do. Do you take her? Yeah, I do. Okay, now I pronounce you and let's cut to a commercial. And that was it. That was their wedding. And I'm thinking to myself. You did that just so, you, so people could see your wedding, and you're going to regret it the rest of your life, that you did that to yourselves. And yet that's what we do. So we should not seek man's approval. We ought to walk in God's sight in everything that we do. That is what we do. I mean, that, that's the umbrella. That's the overarching thing here. But let's move on. Why is it then we do these things? Verses 13 to 17 And notice the two thoughts. First of all, because people are objects of God's love, and secondly, people are potential Christians, potential believers. Now again, there are many reasons why we do what we do, even as believers. We pray, we, we come together as uh, as believers in a church. Uh, we read the scripture. There's a lot of things that we do. But he focuses here really on evangelism. I mean, going into all the world and preaching the gospel to every creature. Down at the end where he's going to say, uh, you know, reconcile yourselves to God. Uh, this, is, this is our ministry. This is what we do. This is why we do a lot of things. And so Notice with me in verses 13 to 15 this thought, that people are objects of God's love. It's Actually, it's not an easy portion of Scripture to go through, but I want to point out just a couple things. First of all, in verse 13, we're reminded that in doing what we do, a lot of people are going to think we're crazy. Is that okay with you? So he says, whether we be beside ourselves... No, no doubt, in the sight of the world. And I think the, the New King James has the word mad, right? Some people think we're mad. It's interesting, beside ourselves, this is exactly, the word it means to stand beside. That's what, that's what this word means. The world thinks we're somebody standing, when somebody's beside themselves, that's what they are, a Jekyll and a Hyde. You know, here's, here's Dr. Jekyll, but here's Mr. Hyde. Who is the real person? Somebody who's beside themselves. somebody it, it, we say is crazy, schizophrenic. Uh, they're not really the person they ought to be. And so the world looks at us and sees us living a Christian life and says, you know what, they're not the person they ought to be. They're kind of crazy people. They're off the track somewhere. They believe crazy things. And they're trying to tell me to do crazy things and believe crazy things. And so they see us as beside ourselves, someone else, rather than what we ought to be. And the point is, are we okay with that? As a matter of fact, in chapter 6, a great chapter also in this book, is where he uses some prepositions to, uh, to admonish us. In verse 4 and 5, you see the, the preposition I-N, or in. We find ourselves in a lot of circumstances. From verse 6 through verse 8, we find the, word, the preposition by. Here's how we respond, by pureness, by knowledge, and so forth. But then, in verse 8 uh, and 9, you see the, the preposition as. Here's how the world perceives us as deceivers and yet we're true we know we're preaching the true gospel but they think we're deceiving them verse 9 as unknown and yet well known they look at us and say no one cares about you who cares about these Christians you don't you're not important in this world and yet we know we are known by God As dying, and behold, we live. As chastened, and not killed. As sorrowful, and yet always rejoicing. As poor, and yet we make many rich. As having nothing, and yet possessing all things. And and the, the question is, is that okay with you? As an ambassador, are you willing to go from God to this world and live with people thinking about you like that? So Paul puts that up front in our text. Uh, First of all, in verse 13, uh, people are going to think you're beside themselves. Uh, Or whether, he says, whether we be beside ourselves, and that's what people think, it's still for God, and whether we be sober, that is serious, we still do it for your sake. But now look at verse 14. Jesus died for everyone. When we're talking about why do we do what we do, one reason is why why do we send missionaries to the other side of the world? Because Jesus died for people. I don't know if you got the same email, but I got a I got a, a text, I should say, from our our missionary Tim Smith. And and I say this here, though my voice is being recorded, Tim has to be very careful with sending emails or texts so no one knows where they came from because people in that part of the world are being persecuted. Here's Tim Smith over there in the Middle East saying, I've worked with this man for five years, and he gave his life to Christ this week. Isn't that great? Five years he's been working on this guy, and because we send somebody over there, or at least help send him over there, and why do we do that, folks? because Jesus died for that man, because that man needs to be saved. And so, verse 14, the love of Christ constrains us. I mean, all of this is under the umbrella of loving and caring for people, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then, I'm reading the old version now, We're all dead, or as Gordon read it, then all died. But notice the first part of that. Jesus died for all. That is simply a biblical truth, and I hope that we believe that, not in a limited atonement, but in an unlimited atonement. He died for the whole world. To Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, he said, we should pray for all because God will have all men to be saved, and he gave himself a ransom for all. So he died for them. And so wherever we send missionaries, we can send them with this message that God loves you, and, he, and Jesus Christ died for you. You can say that to your neighbor. You can say that to anyone that you meet. That is a great thing. Now, the following phrase is a difficult one, and that's why sometimes it gets translated in different ways. Then we're all dead. And it's an aorist tense. Very literally, all died. What does that mean? Uh, Jesus died for all, and uh, then we have then all died. That little word, then, I'm just giving you details here. That little word, then, A-R-A, is identified as something that is a natural sequence, something that logically follows. And there are three thoughts about what that means. Some people think that that means that when Jesus died on the cross... All believers died with him, or all the world, all, all of us died with Jesus at that time in a spiritual way. A second thought is that it's not talking about that time specifically, but the fact that we have all died in our sins. And not only that, a third way of looking at it is that when you came to Jesus Christ, when you came to the cross, you died to yourself at that time. I think the second two of those are worthy. I think the fact is, we did all die in Adam. Go back to, if you can turn to your left to Romans chapter 5 with me, and just notice this passage in Romans chapter 5. First of all, in verse 12, you know this verse, wherefore, As by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men. And again, this version has, for all have sinned, but you have there the same kind of aorist tense, for all sinned, meaning we all sinned in Adam. (laughs) You became a sinner when Adam became a sinner because you were in the loins of Adam, when he sinned. Remember that? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. So here is the same kind of a point made. And that's why I think in our text, when he's saying, since one died for all, it logically follows all had died. I think it means we all died in Adam. Now, holding your place there in Romans, we'll come back to it again in just a second. But back in our text then, In verse 15, he goes on and he repeats it. And that he died for all. One of the commentators say, why why should should he repeat it here? He repeats it because it's the greatest truth in all the world. (laughs) You can't say it too often. He died for all. That they which live then should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. You're the ones that have lived. He died for you. But you're the one that accepted that you're the one that got life zoe the word here is an acquired life now go back to romans with me a minute in romans chapter 5 and notice that after that verse 12 there's a parenthesis at least in the old version and i think these are good they keep these thoughts sectioned off so from verse 13 all the way down through verse 17 In the old version, there's a parenthesis of thought here. Let me read it. Until the law, sin was in the world. Sin is not imputed when there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, that is, from the first man all the way till the law was given, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as, let me stop and say, People have been dying since Adam. <laughs> and why are they dying? They're dying because all sinned, back in verse 12. Verse 15. But not as the offense, so awful, also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, that would be Adam, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. One more verse. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more, now notice these words carefully, they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, that is, Jesus Christ. In other words, what is the gist of what he says there in Romans 5? We all died because Adam sinned. We all became sinners because of what Adam did. But we have not all become believers because of what Jesus has done. Those who have believed have become believers. And so what is that text telling us? Though all are dead in sin... All are savable, as they say. Any man can be saved, and those who believe are saved. And that is what our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is saying, I think, specifically even. And that is, uh, again, in verse 15, and that he died for all that they which live. We know that that means they which believe should not then henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died and rose again. So I'm looking at people this morning who have believed. You knew you were a sinner. You knew God loved you and Jesus died for you. You heard the message and you accepted it. Now, should you live for yourself or live for God? Isn't that what he's saying? And and that's why we do what we do. We don't live for ourselves. We live for God and for others who are sinners and can be saved also. So people are objects of God's love. We see that. But secondly, in the next two verses, 16 and 17, people then are potential Christians. And here are some, some familiar verses. Wherefore, henceforth, know we know man after the flesh. Though we've known Christ after the flesh, yet henceforth we know him, know him we him no more. Verse 17, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So when we go out into this world, folks, as ambassadors in this foreign land, we look at everyone we meet and we see them as people who could be saved. They could receive Christ as Savior. So notice this statement in verse 16, we don't know any man after the flesh. Kind of an interesting statement, and yet also maybe kind of hard to understand. But in reading about it backward and forward and so forth for a while, let me present two truths I think that are here. We don't see people after our flesh, and we don't see people after their flesh. We see no man after the flesh. In other words, first of all, you don't, and you're not to, look at people carnally. But we're apt to do that all the time. We look at someone and wonder, what can they do for me? We look at them fleshly. We look at them as something that will be an advantage to me. A lustful look, of course, would be how can I fulfill my lust toward that person? Or how can I get some money out of that person? Or how can I get advantage from that person? Or how can I just make him think I'm a wonderful person? That would be looking at people fleshly, carnally, after the flesh. And so we're not to look at people after our flesh, But secondly, we're not to look at people after their flesh. And I I mean by that simply this. You should see them as new creatures in Christ. You ought to see a person as a potential Christian. Not as they are in this world. See them as they would be in the next world if they get saved. See them as a person. What would that person be if they got saved? If I gave them the gospel... And, and they got saved, think of what they could be, and one day live forever with all of us in heaven. We knew Jesus when he was in the flesh, but we don't know him that way anymore. We'll see Jesus one day, and of course in resurrected flesh, but he won't be like he was in his first coming. He'll be like he is now. And he, that's what the point he makes. See people like that. Try to understand people like that, and it will help you a lot. And so verse 17 then says, because, see, if any man is in Christ, if anybody does accept this message, he will be a new creation, a new creature. And old things are passed away, all things are become new. Old things are passed away, aorist tense, old things passed away at their salvation, all things are becoming new, perfect tense, as they live their life. You see somebody get saved, and you say, why aren't you a perfect Christian right now? Because it takes time to grow. (laughs) They became a new creature the moment they got saved, but it takes the rest of their life to grow into being the kind of Christian they should be. And so since we know that, we see everybody as potentially a Christian, something that that, uh, uh, they could become. So we don't see them as objects. I think you understand that. It's a hard thing, isn't it? I mean, we, in this life, we're such self-centered creatures. We do so much for ourselves. We're, we're worried about what we look like. We're worried about how people perceive us. We're worried about you know, our reputation. We're worried about all of that kind of thing. And if we're, so, if we're too worried about it, we go back up to verse 13, and uh, we will, it will bother if, if people think we're crazy. <laughs> but we shouldn't think that. I went, out, I went out yesterday and shoveled my, my neighbor's driveway. Well, I did it because uh, the, the, the couple that, that lives in that house, they're both very old. Neither one of them can shovel snow, and they shouldn't be shoveling snow. So I shoveled their driveway. And I'm thinking about this passage that I'm doing, <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, am I doing this so that they'll look at me and say, boy, he's a great neighbor. He's a, he's a great guy to have as a neighbor. Look at me out here shoveling your driveway, you know we do that don't we it's just kind of natural uh and yet we shouldn't now let me say this i hope that i can be a witness to them no doubt i would like to be able to share the gospel with that couple sometime and so do i have an ulterior motive <laughs> i mean on the other hand should i just shovel their driveway because it's the right thing to do and I hope that's true. You know, I hope I did it for that reason too. This guy is gonna. I remember he was out mowing his grass last summer, and I saw him sitting on the little ledge by his shrub. I thought he was having a heart attack, and I went over there and said, "Are you okay?" He can't even he can't, he can't even mow his grass, much less shovel the sidewalk. So he he can't be out there. It's just the right thing to do to to get that off his driveway. But on the other hand, I hope that that as a neighbor. I have some of the love of God in me to look at that person and say, he's getting old and he's pretty close to the end of his life and he needs the Lord as Savior. What can I do about that? That's all. That's what I'm saying. And you do that, I think, in many ways, and you should do that. All right, move on quickly to, to the last point. So how do we do it? Two ways. We grow in the knowledge of God and we proclaim that knowledge of God. First of all, in, uh, in verses 18 and 19, these are, to me, these are kind of repeat statements. So notice that in the first half of each verse, he says that God was reconciling the world to himself. First of all, in verse 18, all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Okay, you, you understand what that means, don't you? That, that in Jesus Christ dying on the cross he was making it possible for the world to come to God. But look at verse 19 in the first part of the verse 2. To wit, or that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. That is, not punishing them immediately. He's going to give them time to repent. And so two times he says, And and this is a knowledge we need to have of God. Tonight, by the way, I'm going to speak from Colossians chapter 2 on the cross work of Christ. You see that in your bulletin. What was Jesus doing on the cross? That's what I'm saying we have to understand. Have the knowledge of God that this is what Jesus did for these people. This is what Jesus did for you. But then notice the second part of both of those verses. The second part of verse 18 is, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. The last part of verse 19, and hath committed unto us the word or the message of reconciliation. So you're an ambassador, and as you left to go to your foreign land, the king took you by the arm and said, I want you to know this, that you're supposed to tell them to be reconciled. You're supposed to tell them you can be reconciled to God. That's the last thing your kids, your king said to you before you left. And he left, and what was the last thing Jesus said before he ascended into heaven? Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Know that God was in the world reconciling them to himself. And you now have that ministry of reconciliation. So we need to grow in that knowledge, is what I'm saying. But then, in verses 20 and 21, we have to proclaim that knowledge. So, now then, we are ambassadors, and he, and he comes to this word. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. Yeah, I think this word ambassador is interesting. You know that the word elder in the New Testament is from the word presbyteros. We get our word Presbyterian from it. Uh, an elder is a presbyteros. But the word ambassador is presbuamen. It comes from the same word. It means something said from an older and mature person. An ambassador is somebody who's old enough and mature enough, and I'm not saying you have to be age-wise at a certain age. You just have to be old enough in the Lord and mature enough in the Lord to say the right thing. I'm sure that our country and every country in the world wishes that all of their ambassadors were mature enough to say the right thing. And sometimes ambassadors can say the most foolish things, and so can Christians. So an ambassador, by definition of the word, is someone that's old enough and mature enough in the Lord to say the right things. Be reconciled to God. That's what we need to be saying in Ephesians 6.20, Paul uses this same word of himself. He says it like this, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So if we're that kind of person, we can speak boldly, and we can say the things we ought to say. And that's what an ambassador is. So we do that. Now notice then, uh, in verse 21, three statements here. First of all, uh, uh, for, uh, I'm sorry, um, yeah, it, I, I'm sorry. In uh, in uh, verse 20, we are ambassadors as though God to beseech you us, then we pray you. In other words, The love of God constrains us, verse 14 says, We implore you, we beseech you. And number two, in Christ's stead. The word Hooper can mean in behalf of Christ or in the place of Christ. Jesus can't go, folks. You and I have to go. Isn't that an awesome thought? He went back to heaven. And he left us on this earth and said, I can't go there anymore. You have to go there. Here's the Apostle Paul, and no one ever followed that instruction more than the Apostle Paul. And he's saying, Jesus went back to heaven. I'm here because he sent me here in his place. That's what every ambassador does. Do we have that mindset that we're here in the place of Christ, in his stead? And then the message, be reconciled to God. And I like this last statement along with verse 21. And this is the message. It's it's as if the the heralder put the hand to his mouth and said, Be reconciled to God. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's kind of like Jonah going to Nineveh and saying, Fifty days and Nineveh shall be over. We go into the world and say, Be reconciled to God. And there's this great transaction, of course. The one who is righteous took upon him sin, that those who are sinners can take upon themselves righteousness. The great transaction. He took upon an alien sin for our sakes, and we get an alien righteousness for his sake. Isn't it great? And that is the message. What, what, is there a greater message than that for the world? that sinners can become reconciled to God in this way. So just let me finish by saying don't lose perspective. Too many ambassadors do. It's easy to go to a foreign country and just become kind of one of them and live a life of luxury and just enjoy it like it's it's a constant vacation and they never do what they're supposed to do. Let us not as Christians be in this world as a bad ambassador, forgetting who we are, forgetting why we're here. And let's, let's have a Christian perspective of life that we ought to have. Stand now with me, if you will. Thank you for that time. Let's stand and let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's ask his blessing as we sing a song and, and try to think about these things in our heart. Let's stand together. Father, Thank you for reminding us again of these words. We read them so often in your word. We know that we have this responsibility, this stewardship, and we know that we're ambassadors. Thank you for reminding us of that this morning, and even of the details of what the truth is and what we need to be proclaiming. So help us to do that, Father wherever we go, just as if we were a missionary all by ourselves in in a foreign land somewhere, and we had to do the work of the Lord. Help us to see ourselves like that wherever we are, and bless us in our work, and bless us in our word and testimony. Bless us with our neighbors, with our friends, with people that we know, and help us, Father, to be faithful to these things. So As we sing a song and as we surrender our hearts before you, uh, speak to us in the way that we need. Draw us in the way that we, we need to be drawn. Help us to see these things that we need to see. And may you be glorified by it. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.